The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oftentimes what you find is you see people come and go from the idea relatively quickly. It's always a revolving door of people who are in and out. Whereas with more scientific disciplines, you'll see people who spend careers there. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with my friend, Dr. Justin Ramsdell. Dr. Ramsdell is a professor of psychology at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. He teaches forensic psychology. Outside of forensic psychology, he's also an expert witness consultant. So he goes to court as an expert witness and a crisis intervention team trainer for local and federal law enforcement agencies. And today, we're going to talk about how to identify pseudoscience and separate it from real science. He'll also show us why this is important and when pseudoscience can actually be helpful and useful. We'll also explore several traits of pseudoscience, the guru phenomenon, and even touch on conspiracy theories and other quackery. Last but not least, we'll learn some critical thinking exercises to help keep us one step ahead of pseudoscience peddlers that might not have our best interests in mind. Don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here from Dr. Ramsdell. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. As you all know, I am a huge fan of anything that hones critical thinking skills and takes a jab at quackery, especially at the same time, so I think you'll also enjoy this episode with Dr. Justin Ramsdell. Dr. Justin, thank you for coming on the show today. How did you get into this? I know that you do expert testimony in court. The things that you present have to hold up in court. Is that how you got interested in the differences between BS and real science? Yeah, it was mostly out of necessity. Roughly 75, 76% of the states in the United States use something called the Daubert standard to determine what constitutes an expert in a given field in the courtroom? Scientific testimony in a court in the United States, is, at least in these 76% of the states, is only admissible if it meets the standard of the Daubert ruling from the Supreme Court. And that has five aspects to it. In order for something to meet Daubert, it has to meet a majority of these. It has to be empirically tested by objective groups. The idea has to be peer-reviewed. It has to have a known potential error rate. For example, for an MRI machine, one of the issues when an MRI machine first came out was like, do we know how often this thing goes wrong? Do we know how reliable this thing really is? And if you don't know how reliable it is, then how can you trust it in court? It has to have a known potential error rate. And that's where things sometimes, things like voice stress analysis and polygraph kind of run into trouble in court. The fourth criteria is the existence and maintenance of standards of control. So you have to, if it's a machine, does everybody use the machine the same way? If it's a psychological testing instrument, does everyone use the instrument the same way? 
And then the fifth criteria is the degree to which everyone in the field generally accepts it as true. So if someone starts spouting off an idea and we were to poll 100 psychologists, if 85% of everybody said like, yeah, no, that's a valid idea. We talk about that. Then you're good to go. If you say something and you ask 100 psychologists and you only get three people who say, that's a great idea. And I believe totally in that. Well, that's going to be a problem. What all these are saying is we want some sort of predictability that other people can replicate that they have tried and they were able to do it. And so that way, when we talk about this particular evidence in court, it's based on something that can be seen as a more objective fact than a freak occurrence or an occurrence through the perspective of one of the parties. Yeah. The simplest way to put it is, has whatever you're talking about that you're claiming is science, has it been tested? Has it been reviewed by peers publicly in your field? If you're using something, do you know how often it fails? Are there standards that everyone who uses this thing has to follow and rule so we know everyone's doing it the same? And then does everyone think it's a good idea? When you put it in simpler terms, it makes complete and total sense. I have to follow these rules as an expert in court. So I had to start subjecting the things that I do in psychology to these standards. And as we discussed earlier, we can be a soft science. And some of those things, for example, a Rorschach test. The ink blots. Yeah. For some things, the Rorschach's actually really valid. And for other things, it's not. It has a tendency to overpathologize people. And everyone thinks it's, well, in fact, it is psychology from 1917. So that has problems. So you can't use it, even though I love it. But I would never actually use it in a court case because it wouldn't hold up to the standards. So you're forced to take this approach in the courtroom. Then you're training yourself to spot pseudoscience so that you don't accidentally use it and make your testimony invalid. So you've trained yourself to look for pseudoscience everywhere. What happened after that? Did you start to see it everywhere as well? So I start to see it in psychology. Because I'm a forensic psychologist, the lines get sometimes a little blurry between criminology. I know here at the university, half of our criminology professors are psychologists. So when I look at things that are used in law enforcement, and when I look at things that are used in psychology, I evaluate everything through a pseudoscience lens to see like, how well are we doing with this? Can I trust the information coming from this practice? Whether it's polygraph, criminal profiling, voice stress analysis, different interrogation techniques. Even in psychology, we're talking about things, especially in forensics, like the use of hypnosis for recalling memories of past trauma or just recovered memories in general, dissociative identity disorder. There's all sorts of things that walk this fine line between being scientific and pseudoscientific, and those need to be explored. All right, so we've defined science, we've defined pseudoscience, and now, well, we should trust you because judges and juries everywhere also trust you. So who better to have on the mic for this one? How do we spot pseudoscience? That becomes the question here, because if you've trained yourself to spot it so well, and it served you so well, teach us. Well, the first one to talk about would be panacea. The short version of this is, if somebody tells you that something works for everything, then it probably works for nothing. A perfect historical example of this would be bloodletting. If you go into the old medical literature and you start looking at Bloodletting, which for those of you who don't know, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's opening up a vein and letting some blood out. And this goes back to the four humors idea in medicine. But if you had a headache, if you had a tumor, if you had a stomachache, if you had diarrhea, if you had like you name the medical condition and there was a medical textbook that said, like, if you do bloodletting, then it will get rid of it. Essentially, 
Stomach hurt? Cut yourself open. Headache? Cut yourself open. Doesn't sound like a good idea most of the time anyway. That's based on my bias of modern scientific knowledge, right? Right. In their defense, things were different. And what I mean by that is cutting a vein open in 1850 is not like cutting a vein open in your doctor's office now. It was not pretty. It hurt. There were no pain medications. And if you had a really bad headache and then you let a doctor cut into a vein in your arm and you watch them drain some blood, you probably weren't thinking about your headache when you were done. (laughs) Right. The endorphins and the other pain cover up any headache that you would have had before. Yeah, absolutely. Our body has a gating mechanism for pain. That's why you rub your shin when you bump it up against something, right? You try to create another sensation. You probably forgot about your other problem after the bloodletting. In their defense, for the patient, they like, yeah, I got rid of my headache. I've got this infection and you're going to have to cut off my arm in three months. But my headache is totally gone. And then the doctor heard that the headache was gone. And so they just kept going with it. When you look into it, obviously, it doesn't work at all. And there's examples after examples from histories. But the reason that this appeals to people, when you start talking about a specific self-help book or a specific interpersonal technique that all of a sudden you're going to employ and it's going to make things better, like get the girl, make the sale, improve all your social standing, this, 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 all with this thing, all with this one simple trick. That sounds familiar. (laughs) If somebody's trying to sell that to you, Because, I mean, that's what everyone is selling anyway, like is playing the evolutionary desires for status, mating, those types of things. If they say it's going to work for all those, then it's not. Life isn't that simple. So how are you a fan of AOC if we say things like, hey, look, you're going to get more confident. You're going to be able to develop better networks. You're going to feel better in certain social situations. You're going to perform better in certain professional and social situations as a result of what we're teaching you here. Okay, so this panacea but everything that's quoted as such, or at least in limited circumstances, does that automatically make something pseudoscience, or does it have to be a combination of these sort of nine or 10 factors that we've got here? It would have to be a combination. There should be a separation between marketing and product. You would obviously, as a consumer, like the marketing and the product to be similar. If someone promises me that a pair of shoes are going to perform a certain way, then I'm gonna want them to do that. And so for me, I'm not making an exception to my pseudoscience rule when I'm listening to the podcast because the product I'm getting is Paul Bloom and Angela Duckworth and your conversation with them. And that's pure science. The marketing, if one is inclined to, they can choose to ignore. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And the reason I'm turning the spotlight in on myself here is I think it's really unfair for me to say, look at all these pseudoscience guys out there and then go, gee, I hope they don't think critically about my own show where I teach people critical thinking. So I want to be as hard on myself here as possible while remaining fair, hopefully. So we've got how to spot pseudoscience. Step one, panacea. Is this something that is said it works for everything? Are these healing crystals, you know, is this the law of attraction? If you manifest it, it'll happen, that kind of thing. What's next? So the next thing that I'll look for is the individual's use of jargon and or vague terminology when they're talking about whatever it is they're trying to push on me. The vagueness and jargon are the languages of pseudoscience. It's worth it to talk about a scientist first, because in science, the scientists will tell you exactly what they're studying. So psychologists, social scientists work really hard to come up with exact definitions of terms. 
But when you talk to a pseudoscientist, you'll hear them talk about emotional pain or issues. The perfect example would be well, you had a conversation with Angela Duckworth. And when you asked her about grit, she told you right from the get go that the necessary components of grit are perseverance and passion. So she immediately started by defining what she was talking about. Now you are free as a listener to agree or disagree or question her definition, but that's the process of science. And then she didn't leave it there. She broke down passion as being compromised interest and purpose. And then she defined each of those terms. So for her, there was no vagueness and certainly wasn't any jargon. You knew exactly what she was talking about. Now, if you contrast that to a guru, just because something can be classified as pseudoscience using this system or whatever, that it can be classified as pseudoscience doesn't necessarily mean it's nefarious or that it's intentionally deceptive. And that's an important distinction to make. Somebody can completely be sold on their own idea and believe that it's true and be getting feedback and information that proves to them that it's true. And other people are going, this is bullshit and I totally know it, but guess what? I don't care because I'm selling a lot of uh, magic potions for love. So screw all the people. Even if it is placebo, I'm doing them a service because they're happier or whatever rationalization that people need to make to sleep at night. Or they're just sociopaths and they don't care about sleeping at night either. I do bust people on this a lot, especially in the past. Now we seek to avoid them as guests, but we would hear people say, yeah, you know, that's how the energy works. And I would say, well, what energy? Are we talking about kinetic energy? Is it heat? And they're like, well, everything is energy. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe, but only if we're talking about physics. Are we talking about physics? Because if we're talking about how you felt when your husband left you, now we're kind of venturing into bullshit land where that doesn't mean anything and I'm supposed to fill in the blanks in my head so that you sound correct. So the really interesting thing about using jargon and especially vagueness is that it allows the listener to do just that, right? It allows me to take a really broad, relatively useless idea and present it in a vague enough fashion where I can let this person fill in the holes however they want to themselves. So then my idea works for a larger audience as long as they don't examine it too closely. So contrast Angela Duckworth and her definitions to a person that I'll call a guru, whose description I've read on the internet about their meditation, where they say if you breathe out of your left and right nostril simultaneously, which is something that you need to do. Now, this is in quotes from the website, the unification of cosmic energy with the bio energy. Right. Right. That's a bunch of baloney. And it's only possible through this type of respiration. If you didn't examine that statement, you'd just nod your head and be like, yeah, okay. That totally makes sense because things are balanced when they're on both sides. So I must have to breathe out of both nostrils at the same time. Absolutely. And obviously, if you were to even attempt to examine this, it's not going to work because none of these terms are defined. They're all vague. And you see this all the time, like biocosmic energy massages and Emotional blockages is another one of my favorites. Ah, uh, yes. The old emotional blockage can only be cured with theta healing or something like that or Reiki, all the stuff. The examples that are on the fringe are easy to spot. It's as they get closer to you and as we move that truth meter where there's a little bit more truth to the things that people are saying that they get more difficult to spot. And that's when you really need to put the effort in. And this doesn't just extend to psychology. I mean, you hear it all the time and the marketing that we get, things to remove impurities or toxins or all of that kind of stuff. What's interesting is I see a lot of systems 
especially in self-help literature or management literature in business, where someone will say, if you've got an employee that's a giver, or if you've got an employee that's a motivator, and they'll create these boxes for you to put people in. And that appeals to something very basic of human nature, but no one is just the giver. No one is just the assimilator or the head coach or whatever kind of categories and boxes they've decided to put people in for their management system. There's situational variables, there's personality variables, there's time of the year variables, there's a million variables because it's psychology. When you create those categories, now those categories certainly exist on some level. The person didn't create them out of thin air. They saw some type of pattern, but the system that they've created is too vague to be useful. But when you look at it, it makes sense and you want a simple answer. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, Dr. Justin Ramsdell. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. But for now, let's get back to Jordan and Dr. Ramsdale. So we want to look at the simple answer. We don't want to dig too deep because the human mind will generally not do that unless we sort of force ourselves to do so. So we end up accepting what sounds right on its face without putting the critical thinking in that we need to. So we end up saying, yeah, I have emotional pain. And the person goes, yeah, I know, because literally every human being does. So of course this is for you. Right. The part of the human condition. Yeah. It's caused by an emotional blockage or an energy blockage. And you go, oh, okay, well, I don't really know what else could have caused it. So your answer 
seems to make sense, and you've claimed that you've cured other people of this, so I will come in and buy your holy water or whatever it is. Or your your system or your book, or I'll sign on to do your worksheets, or who knows what it might be. In psychology, as we add more truth to the equation, I would start to look for words. I mean, obviously hurt, issues, blockages, those types of things are easy to spot. But if you add a little bit more science to the mix, I would put things like chemical imbalance. I hear that quite a bit when people are talking about depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or some kind of disorder, especially severe mental illnesses. The person has a chemical imbalance, but there is no known optimal level of neurotransmitters in the brain. So how can there be an imbalance? So obviously what people mean is that you have too much of one or not enough of the other, but they don't say, here's the amount of serotonin that you have and here's what you're supposed to have. They just say, you know what, you've got a chemical imbalance, so what you can do to balance that out is hold one of my weights in each of your hands. They're precisely weighted to balance you out. Each one is $10,000. Yes, that is exactly it. I would also put behavioral modification in there in terms of like a vague term that I hear people use where I don't necessarily know what it means. It sounds really great. Like we work in behavioral modification. Isn't that the whole point? I want to change behaviors, right? Right, sure. So if I want to quit smoking and I find somebody who specializes in behavioral modification, I might sign on to that because, man, I want to modify one of my behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. But that's the whole point of everything. Right. A dietitian also specializes in behavior modification because they get you to eat different things. But of course, a dietitian is not necessarily somebody who buys into pseudoscience. It's just that that term, that jargon is so broad and vague that it fits into whatever you want it to fit into, and it's done so deliberately so that you will do that and sign on to their stuff. Yeah, and it sounds super sciency. It does sound super sciency. What else are we looking for in terms of pseudoscience versus real, actual scientific practice? You're gonna wanna look for a lack of progress in the given field or with the given system that someone's trying to sell you. I know everyone thinks it's annoying, especially my college students, when you have to buy a new textbook. Like edition three costs $50 and edition four costs $150. And the professor's asking you to get edition four. While I'm sure there's a profit motive with book companies, textbooks change because science changes. When I had my astronomy textbook, Pluto was a planet. Our understanding of the universe, our definitions of planets has changed. And now Pluto's considered a dwarf planet. And so textbooks need to be updated. So an astronomy textbook from 1910 looks way different than an astronomy textbook from 2010. However, if you were to look at an astrology book from 1950 or 1910 and compare it to an astrology book now, there are far more similarities. Like The field has just not progressed over time because pushing the ball of knowledge forward down the field is not part of pseudoscience. Most people who practice pseudoscience are not interested in that at all. Right, so they're not interested in changing the system, continuing research, refining the understanding. They're thinking in many ways, all right, well, we have this practice. Maybe we say it's ancient, but maybe I invented it 10 years ago. Nobody has to know. They weren't at the monastery that I said I was at when I was working at a food stand in India, right? So why would we have any changes? Why would we have any progress? This is what's selling, this is what's working for me, or this is something I can claim is more credible because it hasn't changed. Right, a lot of people think, a lot of people say things like, well, this practice hasn't changed much in the last 500 years, why should I do the newfangled thing? What would you say to somebody like that? There is such a thing as an appeal to ancient wisdom. If somebody has been using something for a really long time, 
we would generally assume as a person that there's a good reason why somebody would do that. However, if you hear someone talk about ancient texts or ancient knowledge in what they're selling, whatever they're selling most likely has a problem. And not to call it the reflexologist, but I think that's a pretty good example. They believe certain parts of your hands and feet are linked to other parts of the body, which is true. Science is not going to dispute that. You've got nerve endings, you've got blood vessels, your hands and your feet are both connected to your body. So far, so good. They're right on that account. Where they start to go off the scientific rails a little bit is they believe that putting pressure on certain parts of the hands and certain parts of the feet can affect changes related in other parts of the body. So if I have a headache, then there's a corresponding place on my hand that I should rub and that things would be better. Or if I have a stomach ache, then there's a corresponding place on my foot that should get a massage and everything will feel better. And this has been going on for a long time. And so it appeals to people like there must be something to it because people have been doing it forever. But when you subject that practice to science, what you'll find is that one of the reasons that's been going on forever is because people generally like getting their feet rubbed. <laughs> right. I like getting a hand massage. I like getting a foot massage. If I had a headache, you know, it goes back to the bloodletting. But in some ways, it's the opposite because the bloodletting, it's like this hurts so bad that now my head doesn't hurt. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't go bloodletting, but I will go for a foot massage. Yeah, absolutely. Who wouldn't feel better after a foot massage? Now, it's not going to cure cancer because we're going to need some pretty specific science for pancreatic cancer. Then you're going to want to really want to rely on science. But if we're talking about a headache, if we're talking about a general feeling of melancholy, well, then, yeah, it might work. It sticks around for a while. But oftentimes what you find is you see people come and go from the idea relatively quickly. So it's always a revolving door of people who are in and out. Like, yeah, I was into this thing for a little bit and now I'm not into it anymore. Whereas with more scientific disciplines, you'll see people who spend careers there. This is the thing that I study and I've studied it my entire career and I've dedicated my professional career to doing this. Whereas with whatever it might be, pseudosciency, it's this thing I got into for a little bit and then I don't do it anymore. Right. And now I do something else and then I do something else. I notice a lot of people who do a lot of pseudosciency stuff, reflexology, for example, will then be into the next thing the next year or in two years. Oh, now I'm really doing astral projection. And look, I'm the only person who can talk to this particular earth spirit. No, now I'm doing past life regression and I'm the only person who knows how to do this particular type of backwards-looking hypnosis. And that leads into something that you and I discussed pre-show as well, which was these prophet-like champions, where they're the only one who can do it. It's the work of one person. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's very pseudoscience-y, especially pseudoscience-y, and especially common these days. Yeah, here at George Mason University, we've got labs filled with really smart and talented grad students and professors who are answering some really difficult questions. I think the smallest lab here has five or six grad students working on grant, working on a single question. So it takes a team. Most major scientific breakthroughs occurred when a team of people was working together. You know, whether you're talking about like a military or weapon advancement or a health advancement, it's never I went into a cave and I thought about this question for 30 years and then I came out with the answer. You're always going to need a talented group of people around you to help you come up with the answer. But what you see in pseudoscience is the opposite of that, right? You'll see this prophet-like person who 
all of a sudden emerges from the cave. Like I've been doing this for 40 years and thinking about this. And I found the one thing that everyone else has ignored. And this is the answer. And not only is this, do I have the answer, but I'm the only person who understands the answer and can teach you the answer. Right. And so of course the answer they have is loaded with their own anecdotal evidence and personal bias and probably a little bit of greed or slash narcissism mixed in there or some combination thereof, but it is pretty suspicious that they can't go, look, I've thought about this for 40 years, but I can teach it to you in several months and then we can give it away or show everybody how to use this, like science. I mean, that's the whole point of science. Like we publish academic articles, we share our ideas with everyone, then they criticize it and Monday morning quarterback everyone else's work and research, which pushes the ball forward more. And then that gets published in the newspaper and shared with everybody. That's the whole idea. Research is the creation of new knowledge. And so you want to share that with everyone, but you also want to have someone else pick it up when you're done with it and move it forward when you can't or when it's moved past your area of expertise. And a prophet like Champion is never going to do that. In fact, they're going to they're going to make sure that they're the only person that can teach it to you because it's directly tied to the prophet. That makes perfect sense because if there's one person who comes up with it and look, also it's a money-making venture, that's even more suspicious. You really do have to stack these things together because there's plenty of people who think of something themselves, but then they can teach it to other people. And in fact, they do so. There's plenty of people that sell things for money, but usually it's not that's the only person who can do this particular thing or achieve this particular system. And usually that is coupled with, this is something that we've created, you know, that hasn't changed in 30 years. Our organization is the only one that does it. And the guy that founded the organization is the only one that does it. And no, you can't test it scientifically because jargon, 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 vague claim, and also it cures everything. Now we're starting to talk like real pseudoscientists here. Now we're starting to see what real pseudoscience looks like when you stack all this stuff together. And most of that is done in the service of profit. It could also be done for personal accolades or attention or some level of fame. But in general, it's done for money. Whereas science is usually done, it's usually funded by research grants. Our labs, and I use that term loosely, are probably not what most people imagine them to be, right? This is not like a CSI level, fancy new computers and glass walls kind of stuff. We have like an old rickety building and we're relying on grant dollars to do our research and profit's not part of it for a university. But for the profit-like champion of pseudoscience, profit is the ultimate goal. So now I don't want to yuck up someone's ability to make money. Everyone deserves to have an idea, to do what they will with it and try and make some money or a skill or whatever it is. And I recognize that that's it. Like I'm not trying to say that the world is some utopia. So you're entitled to make a profit. But if one of the first things that someone does is try and like give you the hard sell for the money or the donation or whatever it might be, then it's just another piece of data in our scientific process to suggest that this person may be a pseudoscientist. So it doesn't guarantee that it's pseudoscientific, but it sure as heck stacks up with some of the other stuff. If we're talking about pseudoscience, that it is for profit. Hey, you've made it this far, so don't touch that skip button. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Justin Ramsdale after these brief announcements. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. So for a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Here's the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Justin Ramsdell. Let me pause you right here and, and build an argument against myself if I can. So we don't really engage in jargon or vagueness, that's fine. We would love for people to test it, but we can't really do so scientifically what we do here at The Art of Charm, so we ask people to test it anecdotally. I'm fond of saying don't buy anything until you've tried some of the things you've heard on the show and seen that they work for you. There's tons of progress in what we do. We always revise what we're doing here at AOC, but look, we're for profit. Definitely there's three or four of us here that have come up with almost the entire curriculum with the help of outside experts. How is what we do not completely guilty of pseudoscientific BS? Well, you're right. You've got a small team of people. That's not necessarily problematic right off the bat. And it certainly isn't like one profit-like champion, even though you are essentially the voice, right? Yeah, but I've come up with the least amount of the boot camp curriculum, for example, compared to Johnny and AJ, who have done the vast majority of it, teach it every week, and have outside consultants come in and help all the time. And those guys read it on their machines. So I might be the face of the brand, but I'm certainly not the person who came up with everything you learn while you're here. So I think it's actually useful to separate the boot camp from the podcast. But the difference with the podcast is the consumer's not giving you any money. Right, we do give this away. The advertiser gives us money, but I would have more advertisers and more people listening if I just said controversial, stupid stuff and talked about politics instead of this. <laughs> I'm sure. But for the consumer, if they don't like what they're getting or they don't, like they can just go. It's not like you're gonna send them an email and check in with them. They have the opportunity to do that. And more importantly for them, they haven't given you anything except time. So there's no cognitive dissonance in them leaving. They can just go. There's nothing invested aside from time. Now, the boot camp is different because there's a real cost to someone coming. And they're all there for a different reason. For the people who go to the boot camp, cognitive dissonance can be very real for them. I paid X amount of money. Yeah, And if they don't feel like they got something out of the boot camp, they may still convince themselves that they did because they don't like the feeling that they got duped or that like, I'm not the kind of person that would spend X amount of money and not get anything for it. So I'm going to convince myself that I did get something out of it. Yeah, we try to mitigate this with knowing that you have a full refund policy. We don't harass people and we don't do that thing. I've noticed a lot of coaching seminars do this because I've gone to a billion where they go, well, you know, if it's not working for you, 
then you're just not believing hard enough or something like that. No, that's usually BS. Sure, there's gonna be some people who mail it in when they get here because they don't wanna participate, but that is rare. Usually, if somebody comes in and they think, this is hard for me, we wanna work with them at it. We don't go, well, you know, it's because you just don't have the right mindset. That's such an excuse, and I've seen a lot of coaching companies do that in order to essentially guilt people out of asking for what they've paid for, which I find disgusting. So you're right, the boot camp is different because there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance once you get here because you've gone to Los Angeles and invested in this. However, I don't even want to keep your bucks if you think that what you came for was not helpful for you. And so I think that's very different from, and I've gone to some of these other seminars, I can't name them, legally has stopped from talking right. smack about them, but there are seminars where they say, look, you can't get a refund, so you just have to play full on. And if you don't play full on, you won't get any results. So therefore, they've set up this equation where if you don't get any results, it's your fault. It can't be their fault because you're in a room with 100 other people at some of these things or 200 other people. And look, they're getting so much benefit. So you obviously just didn't play full on. And I find that to be despicably manipulative. Well, it's true. They're going to rope you in to the system with all the pseudosciencey stuff, the jargon. And it's not just the coaching seminars, right? It's other any kind of self-help literature that someone gets, they've got evidence, and I'm using air quotes, evidence, like, this worked for this person, it worked for this person, and so if it doesn't work for you, then you must not be doing it right, which is just an awful thing to do to another person because here's someone who's looking for help to improve things, so things obviously aren't like totally the way they want them, and then when they do it and they participate in the system and then it doesn't work for them, because it's based in pseudoscience and it's crap, then there's this automatic mechanism built into the process. It's like a weird kind of victim blaming. I'm like, well, you didn't succeed because you didn't work hard enough. It's not that our system is broken. The problem is definitely you. And then if you believe that, you think, oh my God, like the problem is me. So maybe I had the problem wrong. Maybe I need to get a different book. Maybe I need to get a different system. The person who's most likely to buy a self-psychology book is the person who bought one in the last 18 months. Guilty. <laughs> and I'm sure that is in, in some level, it could be related to genuine curiosity, but part of it is the cycle that this is built in. And when people use emotional appeals to sell things to people or to promote pseudoscientific ideas, that's marketing. And that does not exist in science at all. There isn't even an equivalent to this like use of an emotional appeal. A great example of narrative and emotional appeals are addiction treatment centers. Severe addiction is notoriously difficult to successfully treat. It's really hard. Most treatment facilities cost a ton of money, private treatment facilities, and they do some really, really good work. I'm not going to knock the treatment facilities as a practice or a group, but in all of their marketing material, they have stories like, I went here and then I kicked this habit and now I'm happy and I got the kids and this and this and that. What they don't tell you is that roughly what the science says is about 8% of individuals spontaneously remit substance abuse every year. So what that means is they just stop on their own. Their kid looks at them really disappointingly or they lose their job or things in their life are getting stupid. One thing or another happens and that's the thing that says like, okay, I gotta stop doing this. No more drinking, no more whatever it was that I was doing. And they stop and they stop on their own and they stop without help. And that happens with 8%. And so regardless of what system you create, even if it's total crap, 
the law of averages states that it's going to help somebody because somebody's life's just going to get better. Right. It's just sort of that outlier effect where, look, I got better after buying this placebo effect sugar pill. Well, yeah, maybe it was placebo effect, but also it's very possible that your body was already fighting off this particular disease. Absolutely. And the placebo effect is so strong that if I gave them a bigger pill or two pills, they'd actually feel even better. We actually did a whole show about the placebo effect with Joe Marchant, who wrote that book, Cure. Brilliant book. We'll link to that episode in the show notes. Super interesting. Things like bigger, more brightly colored pills work better, even if they're both made out of sugar, better than a small white pill. It's amazing. The placebo effect is so real, but also very limited in what it can and cannot do based on what the body is able to do. And they use actual science to prove this. I definitely understand the idea behind emotional and narrative appeals, and it makes perfect sense because most marketing does this, but also a lot of pseudoscientific health programs, wellness programs do this. Things like, you're gonna feel great. This is going to improve your energy. It doesn't say, this helps your mitochondria do this thing, and here's a study that shows mitochondria levels are improved after taking this, and it's a lab study. They just say, look, here's a person standing in the sun who was normally in bed sick before they tried this supplement. Look, you can be in the sun too, with your arms up in the air looking at the ocean. Absolutely, and I mean, this is one of the things that emergency. Vitamin thing? Yeah, that they got in trouble for. That they had deceptive marketing, I think they had to pay $6.4 million or something around that, for making misleading claims about the benefits of emergency. Because they said it prevented colds, and then someone would take it, or it stopped colds early. And then someone would take it. And you know what? If Bobby at the office took emergency and his cold was gone in two days, then that sounds great. Like I've got this narrative story that feeds into something that's not true. And then I'm going to take it and I'm going to do it. But you know what? Bobby's cold would have been gone in two days anyway. I want to wrap with conspiracy theories. We see this all the time, right? They don't want you to know. This is often the result of pseudoscientific thinking and principles in the first place. Yeah, and I feel like I see this a lot on the internet, and it may just be, given my field of study, I, sometimes I Google strange stuff. The fact that I get conspiracy theory ads on the side of my web browser may be related to the profession that I'm in, and maybe everyone doesn't get those. Or maybe they are sending them to you. Oh my gosh, all this time. This is the most ridiculous of all of the things that we've talked about today. The idea that there's a secret that they, and again, air quotes, don't want you to know it's just absolutely ridiculous that someone would purposefully hide something that they had the ability to make money off of. Right, like a cure for cancer, when people say pharmaceutical companies are hiding the cure for cancer because they want you to buy these other drugs. The idea that there's a simple solution to a problem that's been purposefully hidden from the public is absolutely ridiculous. So that's because we live in a capitalistic society. If someone was sitting on a solution to a problem that had a high profit potential, and let me throw in the caveat, that solution that they were sitting on actually worked, they would have found a way to monetize it by now and make some money off of it. In fact, the history is replete with examples of corporate espionage and patent infringement from people attempting to do just that, like take other people's ideas and make money off them. The idea that there is this one answer and someone's got it and they don't want you to know like, that's just ridiculous. Somebody would have known it by now. Somebody would have tried to make money off of it. And you see people selling things like that. I've heard this real example, of course, in Los Angeles, where there's somebody that says, 
hey, I used to work for this company that I can't name. Let's just say it's one of the largest pharmaceutical companies anywhere. And I happen to know that they're hiding this and I know the formula because I have a photographic memory. I'm making this supplement. It's made in China because the US won't make it for me. You have to order it through my website because Amazon won't stock it. The pharmaceutical lobby's got it out for me. I'm in hiding. There's no videos. I can't tell you my credentials, but I'm the only one that has it. And there you have it, right? Absolutely. And then they throw in like the fake authority on there too. Like I used to work for a major pharmaceutical company. And you're like, okay, like doing what? Were you an accountant? Right. It was the copy machine repairman. Oh, God, that reminds me. There's a guy in L.A. who's a quote unquote coach. And his thing is that he used to be the copy machine repairman. I'm not even kidding at the Pentagon. So he's seen all these top secret documents that were stuck in Pentagon copy machines. And those documents have shown him how to insert whatever goal you have here in L.A. as a wannabe actor, singer, model, photographer, and he can help you with that because he has the government secrets and he's no longer able to do his old job, which is surprisingly copy machine repairman. He's no longer able to do that, not because people use digital copy machines that are more reliable, but because they won't let him back in the industry because he has seen too much. I'm not kidding, people are giving this man thousands of dollars constantly, and I've met him. What he has, is the ability to tell people exactly what they wanna hear and appeal to their ego in a way that is very impressive that I have rarely seen. And he goes after his critics first with flattery and then just in a way that is vicious. And that has kept him on the top of his little cult. I'm sure that he does. And I think he actually uses something very ingenious, which is, I think we all have this innate wish, maybe, that we are sitting on some kind of untapped potential for ourselves that we as individuals are really far more amazing than we actually are. We just need this one thing. There's something that we're missing. There's something that we don't know that's gonna unlock that potential. And I get that desire, right? I think this is one of the reasons why superhero movies are so common, and I certainly don't wanna get into like psychoanalytic theory, but who doesn't wish that they had Tony Stark's intelligence or money or the crazy Iron Man suit? That would be amazing. And if somebody had this one piece of information, I know that I'm that smart. I know I could be that rich, but there's just this one thing that everyone's been hiding from me. And if I had that, then it would all be unlocked for me. That desire is innate, it's real, I totally get it, but it's also easily exploited. All right, let's wrap with some practicals on how we can spot pseudoscience. Obviously, now we have an idea of what to look for, but how do we do this in real time? How do we start the practice of recognizing when we're trying to solve our own problems or evaluate information and we're looking at pseudoscience versus something that is real and whether we're looking at pseudoscience that is helpful or whether we're looking at complete and utter baloney. Right, well, when we already talked about the fact that a lot of this literature has a tendency to be victim blaming. So if you give them money and it doesn't work, then the problem is with you. And so one of the first things I'll tell people is don't fall for that. If you gave it your all and the system didn't work, then it's probably a problem with the system. It's not a problem with you. And we already talked about the law of averages in terms of finding people who say that it's going to work for them. So now that you can identify it, we live in a really interesting time that allows us all to collect data on ourselves. You can find out if things are really improving for you or if they're not improving for you. The number of people I know that are tracking steps and heart rate and things that they eat, if you think about just the idea of doing that 10 years ago and how kind of society's attitudes towards that have changed. Now, there's no reason you can't do that with 
personal interactions. There's no reason you can't do that with feelings of anxiety or feelings of depression. You can completely and totally track yourself. Now, you need to find a way to be honest with yourself because you're going to be subject to your own biases. So if you started a system like, I'm putting all the effort into the system so it must be working. You have to find a way to objectively, I guess, look at yourself so that you're not convincing yourself that something is working and you're engaging in your own kind of placebo effect. You can collect tons of data on yourself and then apply science to yourself. Does that make sense? It does. So essentially, we're trying to figure out whether or not we're a victim of our own bias. And the best way to do that, of course, is to run some tests, not just to ask friends, what do you think? Because then you're just subject to their bias and your bias against that particular person as well. And finding a really honest friend who will tell you the hard things is difficult. And if if you have one, keep them near you. Right. That's provided that they can even tell what is going on. Because there's plenty of people who say, oh, you don't need to lose any weight because they are also overweight. And that would mean something for them. And it would mean they need to go to the gym. And so they might know, but they might subconsciously not even see that because they don't see it in themselves. So we have to apply what we've learned about pseudoscience to the information we receive. And I think it's important to look at things that you and I talked about earlier. How is the information communicated to you in the first place? Is it because you were at a seminar and then somebody came on to give a free lecture at the end and that happened to be an upsell to their thing? Were you getting the information through a friend? Is it marketing or is it something written in an article that is designed to be informational instead of marketing? There's all kinds of things you have to look at, such as considering the source and what was the source designed to do? Was it designed to make you feel fear of missing out so that you buy something? Or was it designed to talk about someone else's experience with something? Or was that experience also designed to do that? Is that also marketing? So you have to use a lot of critical thinking here. And in the case of science, the source being usually universities, nonprofit think tanks, things like that, are designed to create and disseminate knowledge. There's no other motive there. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been academics who have misbehaved and we could do a whole nother podcast on that and their psychological profile and issues. But for the most part, you can trust the information coming from most universities because it's literally set up just for sharing knowledge as opposed to somebody who's designed to make money, right? If you're designed to push one person to a higher status or whatever it is. So definitely where it's coming from, the motivations of the people that it's coming from, you have to think about whether or not, is there another way to look at the information that's being communicated to you, right? Imagine that there was a race between the fastest runner at Duke and the fastest runner at North Carolina. One day they square off in a 5K cross-country race and the person from Duke blows away the person from North Carolina. I have no horse in this race for either university, but I don't mean to make anyone angry if you're a North Carolina fan. Just imagine, if you will, that it's possible that the person from Duke could win. The Duke School newspaper is going to write, Duke takes first place in race against North Carolina. Now, the North Carolina newspaper, the student newspaper, could easily write, North Carolina runner takes second place, Duke takes first. Sad day for our team. Or they could communicate that same information, North Carolina runner takes second place in race, Duke is second to last. So it's completely possible. That's the exact same information. So when you get new information or when it's coming in, you have to ask yourself, is this being clearly communicated? Or is there something, again, vague about this where I could interpret it a different way? And if I interpret it a different way, then does it start to look like BS? 
There's so much here, and I think looking at these different categories, making sure that you realize they have to be stacked together, because I think almost any one of these can fit pretty much anything, right? For-profit, non-profit, narrative and emotional appeals, conspiracy theories, of course, and a category of their own. But I think once we learn about these categories and we can stack them together and look at the source of the information and how it's presented, we have a much stronger skill set for thinking about things critically, especially when it comes to pseudoscience. So thank you very much for your time today. I think this is interesting stuff. I wish I could take your class. Well, be careful what you wish for, right? It's a lot of work, but the fun thing is we get to spend more time. We get to spend a month just on identifying pseudoscience before we go applying these to other things. Well, thank you for being a fan of the show, and thank you for sticking with us, even when we sometimes have guests that are a little bit pseudoscience-y. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Great show, Jason. That stuff is so interesting, right? There's all these little kind of factors and, and identifiers that go into what makes something pseudoscience, but if you only have one or only have two, it's not necessarily definitive. So in a way, there's almost a pseudoscience to identifying pseudoscience. And I really liked his description of trying to figure out where orange turns to yellow and showing how fuzzy psychology can be because everybody's always gonna find a different point on that spectrum. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, the key here is to find what's useful for us and not just victimizing our wallet, for example, right? We're not talking about something that even placebo effect can be helpful in certain ways as long as we know what we're getting ourselves into. And for that matter, getting better at identifying pseudoscience is a skill that will not only help save us money and keep us safe, but it just makes life more interesting because you see this all around you. You can't turn it off. It's another switch in seeing the matrix, in my opinion. So great big thank you to Dr. Justin Ramsdell. Of course, we're gonna link to his resources in the show notes, and if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank him on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Dr. Justin Ramsdell. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, at Jordan Harbinger. And don't forget about the worksheet for today's episode if you wanna solidify your understanding, which you should want, of the key takeaways here from Dr. Ramsdell. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also wanna encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, and these critical thinking skills similar to what we discussed here today. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker, and it's free. A lot of people don't know that, it's free. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum, and apply the things that you're learning on the show to your life here every day. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends, share the show with enemies, stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.